Yo, yo, what's happening, everybody? Welcome to Inside the Mind of Marcus Martez, Season 1, Episode 9. Today's topic, Red Summer. Today, I am talking about Red Summer. Uh, before I dig into the topic today, uh, hope everyone's having a great June so far. Uh, summer is here, well, almost here. But it's hot. It's starting to get hot. I'm liking it. Be outside all day. Getting my vitamin D in. It's good, you know. Um, I'm up here in southern Ontario. And uh, it's nice. The summers, the the winters make... So going, surviving through the winters make the summers worth it. Because it's beautiful, man. I tell you. Um, It gets hot during the day. I don't know. I don't want to say hot. It ain't the South hot, but you know, it, you know, it gets pretty toasty up here um, during the day and at night. It's cool, so it's it's, it's a good balance. Um, so I'm enjoying summer uh, today. Uh, it's actually June 16th. It's a big day for me because it uh, on June 16th is the day I broke my leg. Um, uh june 16th 2000 so it's 20 years today uh, i was at a football camp west georgia that's i talked about this in one of my episodes uh tell your story yeah today's that day uh at a football camp west georgia junior year starting building a linebacker for the harrison hoyas i hey i'm whew, i'm thinking about man i was feeling good I remember that day like yesterday. Well, I was feeling good. Well, I was like, I was 5'11", 225, 230. Ran a 4'8". And, and, and that might, you can say that it's not really fast. But I was not a fast player when it came to running the 40. But I was football fast. It's a, there's a difference. Um, and that was my, going into my junior years. The first year I actually just started like really applying myself and working out. So... Uh, I had the talent, you know, my, my father's the uh, old Miss all-time leading tackler. So I had it in my blood, but it was the first time. I, that's the first year I really applied myself. And man, I tell you what, I was feeling good. Ah! Um, but yeah, you know, I, I was starting linebacker. Then boom, broke my leg. Season ending started. It was the summer before the season started. Broke my tibia and fibula. Compound fracture. And, uh, yeah, end up, uh, having up to 16 surgeries on my leg, almost had my leg amputated. Um, but yeah, by the grace of God, still have my leg. Um, yeah. And I tell my, I tell this story in my book, how I came back from almost, uh, from near amputation. And you know what I'm doing? Like I said, I'm doing a little bit of marketing right now because, um, why this is gonna why this book's gonna be i call it inspirational is because it's, it inspired me because i mean I, th- I sit back and i think like wow how many 16 year old kid kids do you know who almost had their leg amputated and not even a year later eight months later they came back and played football in Georgia high school 
the top level and was considered one of the best players on the team. I, if you are, are a fan of football and um, uh, you follow, I think it was this season or the season before, uh, the quarterback for the NFL team in Washington, Alex Smith, uh, suffered the um, same injury. He uh, broke his leg. And the same thing happened to him. He had complications with it. And, it, you know, from like the articles I was reading, it got really scary. Um, he almost lost his leg. So um, same, same thing, you know, same story, same situation. So, yeah, that's why I just feel like, you know, today's that day. So I'm kind of a little emotional today. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking back you know, when it happened and the whole process and me almost trying to lose my, me almost losing, about to lose my leg. And, and today I still suffer from, um, I still suffer from that injury physically, um, complications I still, uh, deal with. So 20 years, I'm still trucking, I'm still walking. Hey, so, um, but yeah, also today is, uh, Tupac's birthday. So happy birthday, Pac, uh, June 16th, 1971. So I just rambled on for about five minutes. But yeah, that's me marking it, y'all. Um, so it's been a couple weeks since my last podcast, um, since the George Floyd killing. So it's been a couple weeks since uh, I did the podcast. And um, let's talk about this. I'm just going to talk about uh, some things that this happened. You've had the um, the riots that took place after the uh, killing. That was huge. That was uh, that was, and that's that's what actually sparked inspired me to do this podcast today. The riots, just seeing those riots taking place, like man, this happened back in Red Summer. And I was like, oh, that'd be you know a good thing to do a podcast on. So that the riots after the killing sparked uh, that idea. You know, but then after the killings, you had the peaceful protesting, which was nice. Um, I'm up here in, like I said, Southern Ontario. And um, they had peaceful protests last weekend in the Niagara Falls. And they had a uh, couple days ago on Sunday, they had a peaceful protest in uh, St. Catharines. Um, and for those who don't know, uh, Southern Ontario was a safe place for a lot of runaway slaves. Uh, via through the Underground Railroad, um, ones that uh, came up through Southern Ontario. Um, they settled near Niagara Falls, Fort Erie, uh, Niagara on the Lake, St. Catharines, uh, settled along the Ontario and Fort Erie, I'm sorry, Lake Ontario and uh, Lake Erie. So living, living there, uh, calling themselves freedom seekers. And the general led the general led them up this way. Everybody know about Harriet Tubman. Uh, she led them up to the Niagara area and the St. Catharines area. Um, she attended the Salem BME Church down in St. Cap downtown St. Catharines off Geneva Street. Uh, I go there once a month, twice a month uh, before Corona, um, have service, and it, it's you know it's good people. Uh, I take my son there in Memphis. We go to the church. He's always running around in the basement and stuff. So it's uh, it's relaxing. I think it's I think it's pretty cool. My son gets to grow up and say, "Hey, I uh, sat in the same pews as Harriet Tubman." Um, so yeah, Salem BME Church. 
that's downtown St. Catharines. So if you ever come up here and visit Niagara Falls, so, uh, check out the church, y'all. It's very, it's a historical historical site. Uh, it's very informational. Uh, so you gotta check it out when you come up here. But uh, back to the protesting they had one St. Catharines, um, and they met at the Salem Church. Uh, they met at the Salem Beaming Church and started the protest there. It was uh, peaceful, from what I heard. It was nice. Of course, it was peaceful, but it was nice. It was uh, in, uh, inspiring. Uh, I heard a lot of good things about it. So, um, but yeah, the, the peaceful protest was go going on now throughout basically North America and if not the world. Uh, and then this is up there with like the civil rights movement, you know, uh, you know, right now is this, you know, laws are being worked on, you know, folks are having discussions. Uh, this is wild, but it's good. Uh, I saw that Twitter, uh, square Nike NFL, they're going to make Juneteenth company holidays now. And uh, if though if y'all don't know uh, what Juneteenth is about, um, on June nineteenth, eighteen sixty-five, that's when the last enslaved blacks were uh, freed in Galveston, Texas, uh, two months after the Confederate Army uh, surrendered in the Civil War. So freeing them made the them they were the last enslaved blacks to be free from bondage. So uh, Juneteenth. Uh, Juneteenth is a day black celebrate, uh, also called Freedom Day or Emancipation Day. And uh, also, speaking of Juneteenth, I saw that uh, Trump he was gonna he was gonna campaign on Juneteenth uh, through Tulsa, Oklahoma, and that's Black Wall Street. My God, you want to talk about riots? Woo! The Tulsa race riot of 1921. Uh, that's where white rioters destroyed a section uh, of Tulsa called Greenwood. You know, it was the black section of town where uh, black folks were doing good for themselves. Hey, you know, they had business, uh, businesses, schools, hospitals, churches, theaters. They had a bus system. I think they had an airport. They had professionals, dentists, lawyers, doctors, man, blacks, blacks folks are making so much money. Hey, I mean, that's what happened. When you give black folks a nickel, they'll take it a mile. And since, since Jim Crow was, you know, keeping folks segregated, the blacks kept the money in the community because they couldn't go spend it at the white establishment. So that, that black wealth grew. Um, and it was black wall street it was 36 blocks of just businesses uh, but you know, under the then there was this false accusation that uh, a black kid had assault, uh, assaulted a white girl and within a matter of days it was all destroyed all burned down um 300 over estimated over 300 blacks were killed uh, estimated 32 million dollars in damage um what's the what's the uh cost and that's that's and that's nineteen twenty one and with inflation today I can't tell you how much that is, but it's a lot um so yeah, the state of Oklahoma kept it under hush for about seventy some years they they ain't put it in no school books they ain't talked about nothing 
but uh, it, and it had been talked about. But until when recently, Donald Trump said he's going to campaign through Tulsa, you know, black leaders like, hold on now, hold on, what you about to do? And that, you know, brought press, not press, but it brought attention to uh, Black Wall Street, Tulsa. So thank you, DT, for the free pub, because now I got a podcast coming in a couple weeks where I need to, hey, people need to know about Black Wall Street and how uh, even today the black generation can see that our ancestors, when they invested in themselves, what we can do. And I know right now, I don't know the numbers, but I know the black dollar isn't as strong. But if we can learn from Black Wall Street, hey, the sky's the limit. And right now, especially in today's era, you know, our ancestors built Black Wall Street when they couldn't use white toilets. We got so many resources now, we have no excuse to build another Black Wall Street. So uh, I got that coming in a couple of weeks. But again, uh, thanks Donald Trump for the free pub. And also, um, NASCAR, they, uh, they said they're going to ban Confederate flags. I was like, wow, this is big. Like, <laughs> I'm thinking, I went to a NASCAR event once. And how long ago? It was like six years ago. I, don't know, I, was, with my, I was with my homeboys, Peoples and Rosier. Um, Peoples is black. Rosier is white, and we call each other the Oreo. Like we've been friends for damn near twenty years, and uh, in our little WhatsApp group chat, our picture is you know me and me and people's on the outside, and Rosier in the middle, and that's you know that's that's us. We the Oreo, homeboys, best friends. Um, but those two, they love NASCAR. Peoples and Rosier, they love them some NASCAR. Rosier, he's a Jeff Gordon fan, and Peoples. He's Tony Stewart. I don't know who they like now. I think Gordon and Stewart are tired. So I don't know who they I know they just love the sport. Uh, so they was going to this race in Charlotte, North Carolina. And it's like, hurrah, you want to go? We got an extra ticket. And I was like, uh, I'm not really a NASCAR fan. But, hey, I'm open to trying new things. So why not? So we ride over to Charlotte and, uh, you know, got a room, you know, went to Waffle House. You know, that's what best friends in the South do. Uh, so we went to NASCAR, when NASCAR event. And I got to be honest with you. I got to be for real. And NASCAR is not that bad. I, I get it. You know, his cars just driving around in circles and it's loud. But, you know, if, if, like me, I'm a competitive person. I got a little competitive juice in me. Um, I can see how it can be exciting. I see the I see where people can get hyped up about a NASCAR race. But the only thing that I didn't like about the race was the Confederate flags. So in, in my history, let me get a little background on my history with Confederate flags. And I know that when white folks heard the news, not all white folks, some Southern white folks heard the news about the confederate flag i know they was mad i know because i grew up in the south i went to high school in like i said Kansas, georgia i was born in alabama i grew up on the campus of old miss uh, i would say for the vast majority of my life 
I seen Confederate flags. Even up here in the Niagara. I'm up here in uh, uh, the area where a lot of ex-Confederate soldiers um, fled up here to the Niagara region post-Civil War to uh, avoid jail time. So there's Civil War descendants up here in Niagara. I see, I've seen plenty of Confederate flags up here. So I've been around the flag. I've seen it throughout my whole life. So I understand. I know how passionate some white folks are about that flag. And I, I, you know, I'm a man of passion myself, a man of history. I, you know, I respect your passion for the flag. Um, I grew in, in high school. I remember kids with, uh, you know, drive pickups, pickup trucks to school with Confederate flags on the back. Uh, they would wear their t-shirts in school with the Confederate flags on it. And, I never remember this one cool this one kid. He used to bring his flag to school and just flash it in the hallway like he was representing the gang. So I get it. Uh, but I used to have I used to have a conversation. Well, no, with white folks. And I'm always talking. I'm not afraid to have these conversations and just respect. And we was having conversations, and uh, this was like back in high school. Um. And they would just, they would tell me, they were like, you know, it's not hate, it's heritage. And I was like, huh, okay, I get that. But the same, at the same, at the same time, I really don't understand. Because um, this is, this is how I look at it. Uh, the Civil War, it took, okay, so the Civil War took place in America between the North and the South between 1861 and 1865. Uh, it is believed, or we're taught, uh, that the Civil War was fought to free the slaves. And I can tell you that is not really true. Um, the Civil War was fought to preserve the Union, uh, keep it intact. It was fought on how this uh, United States was going to be ran. Was it going to be like the industrial north of the uh, the ways of the south uh, and right before abraham right before abraham lincoln took office uh the south the first state being south carolina succeeded from the union and every other basically southern state followed um why to protect and fight for the institution of slavery uh so the confederate flag is the battle flag for the confederate army uh the side that rebelled against the Union, the United States. Um, and they was like, F it. They formed their own country, the CSA, the Confederate States of America. So when I see the Confederate flag as a black man, I see it as a flag that represents the Confederate Army that rebelled against the Union to fight to keep my ancestors in chains. That being said, kudos to nascar for making the decision to take down the confederate flag but you know what and that being said i bet nascar would attract a lot more diversity because like i said me being you know a black man going to a nascar event someone who finds it offensive um because of the history i don't want to go to, i don't want to like i don't even want to watch nascar or i don't even i would if i don't even want to watch nascar i definitely don't want to go to an event but now that the I don't have to go associate NASCAR with the flag, 
I'm going to be more open to it. I'm like, okay, I can watch it without not thinking about my ancestors being in chattel slavery. Um, so kudos to NASCAR. Uh, so yes, um, that's what's been going on the last couple of weeks. Um, all the change and uh, just to jump on today's topic, um, we're talking the uh, red summer and the riots that took place a few weeks ago. Um, and just to forewarn y'all, uh, this episode is going to be kind of disturbing. Um, it's, uh, you know, you got to understand that Black Lives Matter, but so does Black storytelling. Um, they're both hand in hand. So in order to understand the Black life, you got to understand Black history. So I got to tell the story of my ancestors as raw as possible. And it's going to be graphic. Not no, not all my podcasts gonna be like this, but just on this topic today, Red Summer is gonna be graphic. Uh, I'm gonna drop the N word. I'm just letting y'all know if it makes you uncomfortable. Um, you know, I apologize in advance, but you know, it's history. I gotta keep it real, and I gotta keep it raw, keep it raw as possible. Um, so yes, the race riots a couple weeks ago took place in 1919, uh, just 101 years ago. The uh, United States experienced its worst series of race riots in American history. Um, but let me give you this, uh, this, the state of America back then. Uh, you had uh, Jim Crow. Jim Crow laws were widespread throughout, uh, throughout the South and the U.S. Uh, for those who aren't familiar with Jim Crow laws, uh, Jim Crow laws were a collection of state and local laws that legalized racial segregation throughout the United States. Starting with the uh, black codes after the Civil War, um, that's what they were called. But in 1896, uh, that's the year the Supreme Court ruled in uh, Plessy v. Ferguson that separate but equal was constitutional. Uh, Jim Crow then was, they gave the green light to Jim Crow and it swept throughout the United States. Um, I'm sorry. Yeah, throughout the United States, but mainly throughout the South. Uh, not so much in the North, but you got it in the South and you got it in the West. Also, at that time, you had, uh, in 1915, the release of a movie called uh, Birth of a Nation. It was a movie on, called like it is, uh, racist propaganda. It glorified the Ku Klux Klan as uh, these heroes for saving the South from black rule during the post-Civil War, uh, Civil War era, uh, also known as Reconstruction Period. It's a three-hour silent movie that uh, portrays newly free blacks as heathens, basically. Um, unable to cope with being free and since after the... since during Reconstruction Period... You know, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment would pass, so right, uh, blacks were gaining rights, and one of those rights was the um, right to vote. So blacks were putting, you know, voting each other in office. They held positions, mayors, politicians, uh, congressmen. So blacks were taking advantage of these new rights they had they didn't have before while they were enslaved. So in the uh, birth of a nation, it, it basically brainwashed the white population in this movie portraying if blacks were to get in office, they'll pass laws to like for them to marry white women, crazy stuff like that. 
so this was what birth the nation was like and it was so powerful that it was a it became a re, uh, recruiting tool for the Ku Klux Klan um in last episode in that in the last episode if you notice in the title uh America is spelled with 3 Ks instead of a C that's because of this movie uh, at its height like in its peak during the 1920s the Ku Klux Klan had between 3 million and 8 million members. Uh, I'm talking cops, judges, lawyers, politicians, doctors, ministers. That's why they're known as the Invisible Empire. You just never know who's in the Klan. And still, hell, you might not, you'll still even not know because they wear suits now. Um, so the, back then, the KKK ran the country. And that's why I spelt it with three K's. And if you think about it, you know, the Klan, we're talking about, I was talking about the Confederate flag earlier. The Klan associates with the Confederate flag. Um, and a little quick, a quick, a little quick, did you know? Some, I'm sure this is obvious, but the movie Forrest Gump, the character Forrest Gump, was named after Nathan Bedford Forrest the founder of the Ku Klux Klan. Ain't that something? I wonder if they had that like really planned out or was that, I know they showed it in the beginning of the movie, but I really wonder if they really thought that one out. I don't know. Anyway, and also even to this day, um, you can go, you can watch on TV and you'll see at Trump rallies, you'll see the Confederate flag. So, I'm just saying, it just makes me think when I see it, there's all the stuff that thing. I think about the KKK, I think about, you know, the Civil War. That's why, that's when I think of, when I see the Confederate flag, that's what I think of. So, again, yeah, it's a NASCAR. But also, in 1919, um, this was also the year that uh, blacks felt that they were going to take the next step in America. Uh, blacks in the North and the South. Uh, worked and served in World War One, you know. For them, like for blacks serving in the war, they, you know, World War One is the war of democracy, and blacks just felt like fighting the war. They were earning democracy for themselves in America, proving to America that hey, we're we're, we're good, we can work together. Um, you know, then also they just want to prove they just want to earn their equal rights, earn the rights they were promised to them in the Constitution. Um, also in 1919 is during the era of uh, the Great Migration. By 1920, close to 300,000 blacks had left the South, uh, relocated north. Blacks, uh, being black in the South, is, that's it's hell, the threat of violence. Uh, KKK again denied. You know, blacks were denied political rights. Uh, schools for children were whack. Many of the southern states passed work or fight laws. Those required men to either work. The law required either men to work or join the military. And this mainly targeted black men who were always underemployed. Blacks leaving uh, from the south during the Great Migration was more like a black pride movement. That's how I know that's how a lot of northern cities today have large black populations because of the great migration movement. Um, the great migration, excuse me. Uh, you got Philly, Chicago, New York, and 
you know, like I just mentioned a little bit, the black, the black pride movement was really big in Harlem. So that's how you have the Harlem Renaissance. Um, there black culture just came alive. Um, and that's mainly due because the great migration. Um, with, with blacks moving to northern cities, though, it caused uh, a lot of let me see how can I say call a lot of beef with uh, white immigrants because they saw blacks as a threat to competition uh, for jobs, homes, um, political power. And I'm, what I mean by white immigrants, you know, I'm talking about the Irish, Italian, the Scottish, the German, the Polish. And if you think about it, uh, when it comes to like labor force, you know, blacks mainly worked in the South and Northern immigrants uh, in the North immigrants worked. So it was split like that. And, and industrialists in the South in the early 20th century, they prefer black labor over, uh, over white labor. And so that's the distinction. So, um, but in history, white immigrants, although they were discriminated against, they still benefited from white privilege. Um, and that stems back from, if you go back way, way, way back in history, you have Bacon's Rebellion in 1676, uh, one of the first rebellions in the American colonies. And a long story short, you have a man named Nathaniel Bacon. He led a rebellion against the governor of Georgia, uh, I'm sorry, the governor of Virginia, William Berkeley. Uh, Bacon, he didn't like the way the colony was being ran. He didn't like how Berkeley was doing things. Uh, else, especially, he didn't like how Berkeley was handling the situation with Native Americans. And Bacon was like, we need more land. So take the land from the Native Americans. But Berkeley, uh, he was like, no. Nah. We're going to leave the Native Americans alone. Things are fine. Uh, so Bacon, he led a rebellion which consisted of indentured servants, so European immigrants, uh, blacks and enslaved blacks, poor blacks and enslaved blacks. So they all came together and burned down the settlement of Jamestown. So after rebellion, the Virginia lawmakers, they freaking out. Virginia lawmakers, which were the wealthy white landowners, they're freaking out. Like, this is a problem. They they didn't like how the the poor came together and fought against the system. So that's when they started passing laws that made legal distinctions between uh, black and white residents. Uh, when before, the system had systematically defined residents by a uh, place of origin and nationality. But now these laws are passed stating you know basically black and white laws so poor white immigrants even though they were immigrants they still uh they started to identify themselves as white so they can gain the benefits of being the gain the benefits of white privilege and that's how it all started uh, so white meant white meant being free black meant being slaves with no rights and it all stemmed and started from bacon's rebellion and that Rebellion, those decisions of the laws carried carried on, carried on for hundreds and hundreds of years to where we are in 1919 and even today. Um, in 1919, man, racial tensions were high. Uh, 
with the Great Migration, you had a lot of racial tension. Uh, blacks coming back from World War One, competing with jobs in the North as well around the country, created a lot of tensions. And uh, that uh, blacks serving in the military really rubbed whites the wrong way. That uh, leads me to the beginning of Red Summer on April 13th, 1919 in Jenkins County, Georgia. Uh, a man named Joe Ruffin. And Joe Ruffin, this dude, he he was a baller. He had uh, damn near 113 acres of land. He had money in the bank. He had a car. He could read and write. And that, that was uncommon for many blacks in the rural south for a black man to read and write. But uh, on this day, there was a black gathering at the church. And uh, two officers pulled up with a black man in the back seat. His name was uh, Edmund Scott, and he was handcuffed in the back seat of this cop car. And while the cops were at the black gathering, no one knows. They ain't had no warrant or nothing like that, but they just they just believe that, uh, it could be believed they were in search for somebody, uh, some bootleggers, or, or someone with illegal alcohol, because um, there's you no know, prohibitions on this way, and Georgia had passed, uh, passed laws, uh, alcohol laws already. Um, so the cops are passing through, you know, and Evan Scott, he's in the back seat and he sees Joe Ruffin and he calls him out, tell him to call over to the car. So Joe Ruffin comes up he's like, you know, what's the trouble? With, what's the trouble with Edmund? And the cops told Joe Ruffin that Edmund was under arrest for having a concealed weapon. So, okay. Ruffin, the baller that he is, baller that he was, pulled out his checkbook. And offered to write a check on the spot to release uh release uh Emma Scott. But the officer was like, no, nah, we won't cash. And Joe Ruffin's like, it's Sunday. I don't I don't I can't get cash. Like I got I got the check right here. And the cop gets and the cop gets mad. He goes, God damn it, I'm gonna carry him in. So all this going on, the crowd starts to form around the car. And Joe Ruffin tried to reach uh, and pull Edmund and Scott out of the back seat. And then the cop yells at Ruffin, God damn it, get back. Next thing you know, he pulls out a pistol, strikes and shoots Ruffin in the face, leaving him unconscious. He was down for a few minutes. Uh, then it said that Joe Ruffin's oldest son charged the car and uh, wrestled, the, wrestled the gun from the officer and shot him in the neck, head, and the body, killing him. So where it got out was about what happened and blacks knew that whites were coming. So blacks were hiding and hiding in the houses and white folks, they went and got their guns. When word got, word got to them, they went and got the guns. They started, they headed towards uh, Carswell Grove. That was the name of the church and where the incident was taking place. Uh, Joe Ruffin was taken to uh, this white man's house named Jim Perkins. They had been friends and uh, they known each other throughout their life. So Perkins, he had rushed Ruffin to the physician. And so while Ruffin was getting checked, uh, patched up, uh, Perkins burst into, burst, into the, burst into the room. He's like, Joe, come on. A mob is coming. Mob is coming after you. So cars filled with white men on their way to get Joe Ruffin. And Perkins and Johnson, that's the name of the physician, uh, hit Ruffin in the back seat and they sped off to the uh, nearest biggest city, which was Augusta, Georgia. 
So while Ruffin laid in the uh, Augusta jail cell and mob, they 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 had ven they had vengeance in their eyes. Um, they charged. They went to the uh, Carswell Church where the incident first took place. Started shooting out the windows. You know, black folks in the church they jumping out of the windows. Mothers throwing their kids out the windows. Uh, then you know they started to set fire to the church. All the black folks fled and hid in the woods. Uh, then they went to Joe Ruffin's house and got a hold of two of his sons. They lynched them and burned their bodies. The mob then uh, went and torched three black Masonic lodges. Uh, they shot and killed another, shot and wounded another black man. Um, then there was some, there were reports that blacks were being murdered throughout the throughout the county. Uh, a mob, one a mob abducted one of Joe Ruffin's friends who was already under custody. Uh, the sheriff tried to hide them, but the mob found them and dragged them three miles outside of the town, tortured them, and shot them to death. For days, why? For days, white mobs continued just just roam Jenkins County, uh, looking for blacks to kill. No newspaper, black or white, uh, didn't, they couldn't report how many people were killed. Um, the range, the number ranged from four to seven, but it's a lot more than that. Uh, when it's all said and done, the just, uh, the county prosecutor charged Joe Ruffin with murder of uh, the police officers. Um, no white person was ever arrested uh, relating to the burning of the church, the lynchings of Joe Ruffin's sons, or the killings of blacks. When Ruffin found out that two of his sons were dead, he goes to say, I am sorry for Mr. Brown. I am also sorry for Mr. Stevens. He's talking about the two cops. I am sorry for their families, but there has been nobody suffer in this matter like I have. I did not do nothing at all to cause that riot. Uh, the riots in Jenkins County would be the start of uh, Red Summer. The riot in Jenkins County would be the start of Red Summer. Um, after that, you got Vicksburg, Mississippi, a mob which consisted of thousand white men broke into the county jail and dragged a man named Lloyd Clay from his cell. Clay had been accused of uh, rape rape of a white woman and the mob dragged his body out uh, marched Lloyd to the middle of the city hung him from an elm tree uh, while his body was uh, hanging and swinging in the air they filled his body up with bullets then set a bonfire underneath and torched his body the woman who said Clay had uh, raped her she showed no injury and later she told she told, uh, told authorities that she wasn't sure that the person who attacked her was Clay at all. And again, that's that unwritten law, that unwritten law that I talked about a couple weeks ago. Ida B. Wells. After the death of Lloyd Clay, a Vicksburg doctor told an undercover NAACP investigator uh, that the government was responsible for the race tensions because it had drafted blacks into the army, making them equal to whites. The doctor also predicted that the best people of the South will be joining the KKK in large numbers. So that's the Vicksburg doctor who, uh, that's what he told the undercover NAACP agent. On May 15th in Johnson County, Georgia, a deputy was 
driving a black man named Jim Waters out of the county um, after pff, he had been accused of rape. And before he made it out of the county, 150 white men with rifles stopped the deputy. The mob took Waters from the vehicle and told the deputy to go about his business. An hour later, Jim Waters' body was found tied to a tree, riddled with bullets. Uh, the deputy, get this, he was the one, uh, yeah, the deputy who was the one trying to get Waters out of the county, he said he didn't recognize any of the kidnappers and closed the case that day. On May 25th, 10 days later, a 72-year-old man by the name of Barry Washington uh, he was lynched in Milan, Georgia, after he came to the defense of two black girls who were being harassed by these true drunk white men. The, um, these two men were ha harassing the girls, and they ran to Washington's house for protection. And uh, when they got to Barry's house, now Barry, Wa uh, Barry Washington, he was equipped. He had a, he was strapped. He had a gun, shotgun, matter of fact, and he shot and killed one of the men in the gun battle. Uh, later, he turned himself into the sheriff. Uh, by the time night fell. A mob of 75 to 100 white men uh, pulled Washington from the jail cell, hung him up from a post, and shot his body and shot his body up in pieces. The Atlanta Constitution uh, called the killing one of the most horrible that's ever stained the pages of Georgia's criminal history. Uh, no one was ever arrested. Out of the out of the lynchings and killings I've mentioned before, no one has been arrested. And in May and June, lynchings occurred every few days throughout the South. Um, on June 26, as many as 10,000 whites gathered in the field outside Ellisville, Mississippi, to watch a black man named John Hartfield be lynched from a gum tree. Uh, to whites, it was more like a parade. It was like the county fair was in town, and uh, the main attraction was the lynching of a black man. I mean, men was out, men, women, children. Aunties, uncles, grandma, granddad, everybody was out there. And folks out there selling American flags, trinkets, photographs were being taken to be sent out as postcards. Folks out there was having picnics, and it was wild. All just to see this black man be lynched. Um, and just like the rest of them, John Hartfield, uh, they shot him up and burned his corpse. Uh, the governor, the governor of Mississippi. He, this is what he had to say about John Hartsfield. He goes, uh, basically, the stopping of lynching of Negro rapists, rapists was practically impossible. He blamed the French for the violence that was taking place in America, claiming the French had put the ideas of equality in the minds of blacks. Um, black men raping the white women was, or the fear of it, was the reasons or pretty much a cover up for the killings and lynchings that took place in Red Summer. Um, the NAA, uh, they said that in their records, out of the 77 black men that were lynched, only 14 were actually accused of a crime. But yeah, riots, riots was, was running wild through Red Summer. Um, also, riots took place in the nation capital, Washington, D.C., this started when a white woman they claimed a black man had threatened her and uh, tried to steal her umbrella. Uh, and what made Washington's right riots different from the majority of the riots uh, that took place during that summer was um, the riot 
in Washington included members of the military, uh, soldiers, Marines, sailors. And after word got out that of this um, alleged crime, hundreds of servicemen took the streets of Washington and started to uh, attack blacks, uh, beating them up, throwing stones at them, bricks, pulling them from streetcars. Uh, they started doing drive-by shootings on black folks. They they let out. They let loose. And hundreds, hundreds, and especially the blacks who were walked by the White House. Now, I remember they were coming out. I don't remember, but a few days after the alleged crime, uh, Carter G. Woodson. Uh, and Carter G. Woodson, he is the man who started Black History Month. He it started off as Black History Week. And end up becoming Black History Month. Carter G. Woodson, uh, he was in the nation's capital at the time as the dean of Howard University. And on his way home, he ran to a mob passing the nation's capital. And seeing this mob, he ended up running and ducking in the entrance of a store. And he personally saw servicemen attack and chase another black man who was. Uh, who was running away from them, screaming for, screaming for mercy. So this was going on in Washington. But also in Washington is where you see blacks starting to fight back. The, the few days after the alleged uh, assault, word had got out that the black folk, uh, the white folks were going to target the color section of Washington. And then next thing you know, 2,000 black folks armed. They was ready. They were showing no fear, declaring that you know they going to fight the white mob, but they they gonna die for the black race. And the blacks set up barricades around Howard University, uh, uh, Detroit Park, the neighborhood. Uh, many of them were World War War. I can't. I want to say World War War. That's how it sound. World War One veterans. Um, so they they held it down. They set up snipers on the roof. Black men, about a thousand, scattered in the streets, armed and ready to protect the neighborhood. But uh, yeah, blacks retaliated, and uh, but one the whites, the whites still kept at it, you know. Uh, and what made the riot different from the rest of them? I know, like I said, it was in the nation's capital, but also in the nation's capital, that's where the president of the United States lives. And the president of the time was Woodrow, uh, Woodrow Wilson, uh, 28th president of the United States. And uh, he was like, he was like the Trump back in the day. He might have been worse. Uh, he was a blatant racist. Uh, when it came to blacks, he didn't care. He didn't care too much for black folk. Uh, he segregated the military. Birth of the Nation came out. Uh, there was a special screening at the White House. And uh, President Woodrow Wilson reportedly had said... It's like writing history with lightning. My only regret is that it's all so terribly true. Uh, he was two-faced when it came to the black race. Uh, when he ran for president, you know, he's all engaged and involved with black leaders, saying, you know, he was going to listen to blacks' concerns and, and going to make change. Uh, and his strategy paid off because he ended up getting some black votes. But when he got in the black, uh, when he got in the White House, he didn't do nothing. He insulted blacks by appointing a white ambassador to Haiti, a position that's historically held for blacks. 
after he took office, a uh, law was passed making it a felony for blacks and whites to get married in Washington, D.C. Uh, in Congress, both the House and Senate were segregated under his watch. Uh, the riots happened during his administration, and he never did anything about it to help blacks who were being attacked around the country. And a lot of his support came from the white Southern segregationists. So there was never really a sense of urgency. Uh, around the world, people were taking notice, though. Uh, other countries around the world uh, commented on the riots that were taking place in Washington, D.C. Uh, in Japan, the Osaka newspaper uh, mocked the president. It said, American statesman, not to mention Mr. Wilson, should first satisfy the 10 million Negroes in America before meddling in the affairs of other countries on the plea of justice and humanity. So, yeah, the final death tally in Washington was never really fully determined. I mean, the conservative numbers say seven people were killed, four black street whites, uh, but a hundred more were injured and an untold number later had died. Blacks were being blamed for the riot you know, like the rest of them, it's, it's, it's the black, it's the blacks faults that is going on or what's happening. Uh, an essay was published following the riots saying that military service in France made black men more likely to rape white women. It had been a bad and dangerous experience and it has produced danger for white women in the United States. See, this is what I understand. Why did, why was like back then, like why was white, why were white men so afraid of black and black men and white women? Why were there laws? Why was it a felony? Why could you be killed for it? When I find it hypocritical when I think about it, when for centuries, white men forced black women into their beds every night for centuries i mean you want to talk about a crime let's talk about uh rape let's talk about uh adultery how many white slave owners who were married but still had sex with their black enslaved women you know producing kids being the kids because the kids weren't white enslaving the kids that you produced you want to talk about a felony because a black man and white woman uh, are together and want to get married? You know what? I don't get it. It's hypocritical. But, you know, I guess the laws know, and the white, and the white man knows that, you know, when a white woman goes black, they don't come back. So I guess you got to put in laws to keep the white woman from uh, falling in love with the black man. But, you know, whatever. I, I don't know where I was going with that. But, uh, yeah, I know I was going with that. It's hypocritical. You want to put in laws like this, but yet you did it all. You was doing it. You've done it. So now you want to kill people because of these false accusations of rape and stuff. And not even a week after Washington, uh, there was the riot in Chicago on July 27th. Thousands of blacks packed the beaches 
on the hot sweltering day in Chicago, uh, segregated beaches. I might add, you know, black and white beaches, because you know we, the law, law, Lord forbid, black and white folks be on the same beach. You gotta segregate the beaches. But on this day, five black teenagers met up to go swimming, sneaking out the house on a Sunday when their parents told them they're supposed to be in the house cleaning up. They met up at the, the secret beach. They called it hot and cold. Hot water that came from the brewery shot into the lake. And as well, freezing water from the ice company shot into the lake. So it was the spot. And only only few black people knew about the spot. You know, black folks always know where the spot at. God, we, we know, we know, we know the places. And that's what made it so special. So the boys were out enjoying the day. They had a little makeshift raft, makeshift raft. Uh, and they pushed out in the lake and uh, they were just hanging out. Um, pretty much chilling. Uh, neither could swim that well, but you know, they were just being kids, they were just having fun. So, um, but little did they know on this on this little you no know, raft they had, they were drifting to the white part of the beach. And on land, they did not know this as well, but tensions were rising between blacks and whites. Um, over blacks trying to enter into the part, the white part of the beach. Uh, white mob formed, and uh, they began throwing rocks at black people, and black people retaliated and started throwing rocks back. So while this was happening, the boys were out in the lake. They had no idea what was going on, but that was until this white man, he was on the rocks, and he ended up throwing rocks at the kids, uh, at the boys. And the boys, they thought it was a game, so they trying out there trying to dodge the rocks. But that was until one of the rocks hit one of the teens in the head, Eugene Williams. Uh, the rock hit him. He sank and he didn't come back up. Uh, the boys frankly got out of the lake and ran to the black beach to get the black lifeguard. And when the police arrived with the lifeguards, they recovered the body. And the body was on the beach. The crowd formed around black, white. and see uh, Eugene Williams, uh, his body. And while on the beach, the four boys, they pointed to the police at the man who was throwing the rocks. And the white officer on the scene, he refused to arrest the man. And he refused to let the black officer arrest the man. And the blacks seeing this, they were getting mad. And they were furious. Um, a couple hours after the body was found, about a thousand black folks met at the entrance of the white beach. Demanding, the white, uh, demanding that the white police officer be turned over. And also the person, the guy who threw the rock. And the police tried to disperse the crowd, uh, disperse the crowd but that's when a 37-year-old black man, um, his name was James Crawford, he opened fire on a group of officers. And uh, the black officer returned fire and killed Crawford. And, but you know, they, blacks, really, blacks got mad then. The black guy killed the other black guy. And they began to attack a white man. Uh, the four, you know, four Four white guys were beaten. Five of them were stabbed. One of them was shot. The whites fled the beach with rumors. Uh, they started spreading rumors uh, through the bars and through the pubs. Uh, one of the rumors that a black man had drowned the white man. And the other rumor that the blacks were breaking into the armories, uh, getting weapons, getting ready for a race war. All these were false, but it was just enough to start the longest and the bloodiest race riot in Chicago's history. Uh, the Chicago race riot really was the worst one during Red Summer, to be honest with you. Uh, 38 people died, uh, 23 black, 15 white, 
537 people were in, seriously injured. Uh, 10 women were injured, but none was killed. More than 2,000 homes and apartments were damaged. Stores were looted. Taxis and trolleys were vandalized uh, and destroyed. So, yeah, Chicago was the worst one. And after seeing after Chicago, he has riots still going on um, throughout the summer, throughout August. But another, another big one uh, was it really wasn't a it wasn't really a riot. It was just the killing of a man named Willie Brown on September 25th, uh, Thursday night. Uh, a 19-year-old girl named uh, Agnes Lobeck and her disabled boyfriend, um, 23-year-old man named Miller Hoffman. They were walking home from the south side of Omaha, where the blacks live. And according to them, according to the two, a black man with a pistol had knocked the boyfriend out and then dragged the white girl in, by the hair into the bushes and raped her. Then in the next day, the headline in the newspaper said, "Attacked by a black beast." And you know what? Sorry to interrupt. A lot of these riots uh, and all these killings and lynchings are were influenced by the media, by the newspaper. Like, like egging it on. Like, why would you put in the headline in the newspaper "Attacked by Black Beast"? You know what I'm saying? It it, it caught it. It creates that. It, it puts it, it pours gas into the fire. You know what I'm saying? Malcolm X had a quote. I can't remember off the top of my head. He says something like, you got to be careful of the media. The media will have you loving the loving the people. I can't remember off the top of my head. You got you to gotta look it up. But he talks about it. The media will have you loving the people you should hate and hating the people that you should love. I think that's how it went. So, yes, and look. Look at the media. Look what they say. Attacked by black beasts. So the day after the publishing, uh, police arrested the four-year-old, forty-one-year-old man, Willie Brown. Uh, Willie Brown. Uh, he had he suffered acute rheumatism. It's a disease uh, marked by inflammation and pain into the joints and muscles. But he was the one that the two pointed out when. Officers brought Willie Brown to their house. He accused it was him that did it. Uh, before long, whites found out that Willie Brown was at the house, and uh, angry crowd of two hundred fifty white men gathered uh, was trying to make their way around the house. And before they can get to Brown, the police were able to get Brown safely to the jail, to the courthouse. But nearly two hours after he was at the jailhouse, that crowd of two hundred fifty white men. Man, that shot's about four thousand. Man, can you imagine four thousand white people wanting to kill you for a crime that you did not commit? Yeah, I couldn't imagine. And the police, they couldn't do nothing about it. Their their numbers, their numbers capped out at a hundred. But they did what they could do to protect Brown. They set up, you know, didn't let people in. They end up spraying the crowd with a hose, but that really only made the crowd angrier. Uh, by Sunday night, that crowd of angry white men grew to estimated between 5,000 to 15,000 people. Uh, the mob started breaking to the gun stores, stealing weapons and ammo. 
They surrounded the courthouse where the jail was located so Willie Brown couldn't escape. A white man in the crowd goes, we'll get that nigger if we have to burn the whole shack down. And Omaha couldn't get no federal support, nothing. Uh, the commander at Fort Omaha, he responded. Uh, federal support had to be authorized by President Woodrow Wilson or the Secretary of War. And you already know what Woodrow Wilson was doing. So neither, uh, no sense of urgency, no federal support. The mayor who was at the uh, courthouse, he was already, you know, down there. He was trying to protect you know, Willie Brown. And he came down to address the, the mob directly. And he goes, if you take Brown from this courthouse, it'll be over my dead body. <laughs> and then the white man in the crowd goes, he's a nigga lover. Yeah, the white man got the mayor. The, the mob grabbed the mayor, dragged his ass down the street, uh, tried to lynch him over a trolley pole. That was until uh, someone in the crowd rescued him. Uh, the mob tripped, uh, the mob kept trying to get into the building and try to get Willie Brown. Tensions were running high uh, since they were the mob couldn't get to Willie Brown. The best way to get him out was try to set fire to the courthouse, and that's what they did. Set the fire, and you know, on the main level, everybody was down there um, trying to break in. So the officers, Willie Brown, and the other inmates, had to make their way to the top. And other the other prisoners in the jailhouse are now afraid because they're going to die or be burned alive. So they urging the police officers to hand Willie Brown over. And the black prisoners are telling the officers to throw him over the roof to the crowd so they can live. And the whole time, Willie Brown, he is on a rooftop. And this man is crying. He is, he is bawling, pleading. I never did it. My God, I am innocent. None of that pleading help. About 11 p.m. that night, the mob got the hands of Willie Brown. Reports say that he was given to the mob, but that's never been proven. Uh, so the first wave of the mob, they got his hands of Willie Brown, tore his clothes off, and nearly beat the life out of him. After the mob did what they did to him, they dragged him out to the rest of the crowd. And they was like, here he is, fellas. The crowd then took with Brown, wrapped the rope around his neck, uh, strung him over a lamppost. Uh, they then opened fire on his body, hundreds and hundreds of bullets just tearing up his flesh, uh, bullet after bullet. After that, they took him down. Tie his body behind the automobile and they dragged it several blocks throughout the streets of Omaha. Uh, when they were done dragging Willie Brown, they soaked his body with gasoline and set it on fire. After they burned his body, the mob posed for a photo over Willie, Brown, uh, Willie Brown's burnt body, uh, courtesy of the Nebraska State Historical Society. This photograph that I'm looking at right now shows the mob of men standing over Willie Brown, cheesing, posing. Man, you you see guys in the photo trying to fold up on hard, like they're just trying to break their neck to be seen. Uh, and looking at it, and the saddest thing about this photo, looking at it in the front, there seems to be like a kid, and I mean by kid, he looks about 13 to 14 years old. And he's in the front, probably with his father, posing. Uh, sad. 
after the flames of the body died down and after the photograph was taken, people kicked torso down the street. And that's the story of Willie Brown. According to analysis of newspaper accounts, government documents, court records, NAACP files, at least 52 blacks were lynched during the Red Summer. Most of them burned to death. Uh, researchers believe that in the span of 10 months, more than 250 blacks were killed and at least 25 riots um, took place across the United States. But I don't know. I got like I don't that the number the NAACT number. Um, you know, I think one time they speculated it'd be seventy. I think I said that early in this podcast, and then um, I have another source says fifty-two. Like you just never know. Like so many reports, and I personally believe that the number was higher because there's also. The last, really, the last uh, riot of Red Summer. It really wasn't a riot. It's more of a massacre. It took place in Phillips County, Arkansas, uh, when a group of poor black sharecropper, uh, sharecroppers came together, and they were going to form a union because they were they was tired again, hustled by uh, you know, the white landowners who they worked uh, land who worked on. They, they were not getting a fair share of pay. So when white folks found out they were former union, they were attacked. And like I said, this wasn't a riot. It was more of a massacre. A massacre. Uh, at least 200 blacks were murdered. Uh, also in this massacre, 122 were indicted on charges relating to insurrection. 73 were, char- 73 were charged with murder. And 11 were put on death row. And all those blacks that, uh, that were charged... It only took four days of deliberations, and when the trials began, they were they were quick. Uh, all the blacks were assigned white defense attorneys in Phillips County. Not one lawyer filed for a motion of continuance, even though they only had days to prepare for murder charges. Uh, not one lawyer asked for a change of venue. No lawyers uh, did not asked that all white juries be dismissed. Um, two of the cases, it only took t- it only took the jury six minutes to come up to a, a verdict of guilty. 36 blacks were, they pleaded lesser charges, but the rest of them stood trial for, uh, stood trial and were found guilty. And 11 blacks were, uh, were sentenced to death by the electric chair. And out of all the killings of Phillips County, no white was ever faced any punishment. Nothing. They were never charged for anything. Um, so the exact number of blacks died during Red Summer is, I'll be honest with you, it's really unknown. And just from like reading books, and if I had, say, a number, I would say it's close to 500 blacks died that summer. And how many people were charged for crime for killing over the, all those black people? Zero. Uh, Red Summer, it was it was rough. It was bad, um, but there were some benefits. Um, it's, it, it was the year, the era, where blacks started to fight back. 
Um, this had never been done before on a large scale. Yes, you had slave, slave uprisings, but on a large scale, this was never done before. Um, blacks standing up and even killing their tormentors. Uh, like I said, a large, large number of blacks fought and served in World War One, and you know they used their skills they learned to fight America's enemies to fight their own enemies. This is also where you have the NAACP, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. It was founded in 1909, but by 1919 the membership had grown to 100,000 members. Uh, they're you know fighting on the legal level, you know pressing Congress and legislation to pass anti-lynching laws, you know, fighting lawsuits. So they're they're fighting in the courts. Um, you also saw a rise of influential blacks, black journalists and leaders like Ida B. Wells, uh, W. Uh, e. B. Du Bois, Marcus Garvey, uh, William Monroe Trotter, Booker T. Washington. Um, activism took another step during this era, and uh, this paved the way for the civil rights movement that took place some 40 years later, which today, with the Black Lives Movement, has impacted this generation. So we, uh, a lot of the act, like I said earlier in the podcast, a lot of the activism and uh, the movement started during Red Summer. Or the year of Red Summer, when, fought, when, when blacks fought back. Um, so yes, um, that's it. That's that's the podcast, and I'm going to end this podcast like I end all podcasts with an affirmation. And this podcast affirmation is: nothing can dim the light that shines from within. Nothing can dim the light that shines from within. Ten times a day until next episode. If you would like more literature about uh, Red Summer or some uh, do some further reading uh, or have any questions or even suggestions for an episode, simply send me a message on IG at Marcus underscore Martez. Thank y'all for taking time out of your day to listen to me talk. I appreciate your time because I know time is money. Uh, don't, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss the uh, next episode. Until next episode, Harad out. Thank you.